0: But you know what, when I first heard this case, Stu, this was the case I was listening to on My Favorite Murder when I was driving to Kentucky and I had that crazy night where I almost went <gasps> off the cliff.
1: Oh my God. I was,
0: so imagine, okay, after this, I'll, I'll like go back and be like, how do you feel about everything? Like after the yeah. whole case, but like, imagine hearing this case of like a wooded encampment, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, and then you end up in a situation where you have to crawl out of your car and you're stranded in the dark of the woods. I I experienced a level of paranoia out there that I don't think I've ever experienced in my life. I really thought I was seeing things, actually. And I was dead serious. And I made us get back into the car, which is the craziest part, because I had convinced myself in, like, I don't know, the fright of, of going off the cliff, but also being stranded outside of the car and in the middle of nowhere and no cell reception. I convinced myself that I saw someone in the woods.
1: That story and I was, terrifies me.
0: And I was dead serious. I was, I, there was nothing in my mind, no shadow of a doubt where I was like, that's not a person or I'm seeing things or my eyes are playing tricks on me. Cause it's like two in the morning at this point. Yeah. I was like, there's someone in these woods. I was losing my mind. I was losing my mind in Kentucky.
1: That was when you were with your sister, right?
0: was with my sister and I was, I think I told this on the very first podcast episode, but we were going up to an Airbnb in the mountains of Kentucky and we had gone off the trail somehow in the dark and the car almost flipped off the ledge of the mountain. Like it was literally the back wheels were hanging off kind of thing.
1: I can't, I can't. Oh my gosh.
0: And oh God, I'll, that's still, I think that's the scariest moment of my life. (laughs) I can't think of anything else scarier. I know. But yeah, I mean, having heard this podcast before, that definitely made it exponentially worse. Um, And I vowed to never go back to Kentucky, but, you know, specifically the mountains of Kentucky. (laughs) Right. I have have an old quote. I was looking at quotes from when we were on tour, and there was one about Kentucky, and it was like, nothing good ever happens in Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was from Cheyenne. (laughs) We were in Bowling Green, right? It was like Bowling Green, Kentucky?
1: Oh, yeah, Bowling Creek, that was our very first show.
0: Yeah, and we also went to a cave, if you remember. Oh, Did you I, come didn't with us?
1: I didn't go. I didn't go. I didn't feel well. No. I oh, no. So I stayed well, we, we were drinking the night before, I think. La Quinta or wherever we were.
0: <laughs> oh, we weren't in La Quinta. We were oh, yeah, in, like, we weren't. a quality in, a sleep yeah, in. days in. <laughs> if we were lucky. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> The amount of times that we would just go to, like, in and be like, who's hitting the pool? And we'd just go to that semen-infested pool <laughs> with, like, one mold. dead... There's, like, a dead body in, like, a beach chair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> By the end of it, we were just unfazed. Like, there could be someone literally floating in the pool. And we were like, nah, all right, that's all right. We'll get in. Well,
0: look, look. I thought I had been in the worst of the worst hotels on tour. I Doing the road trip with my sister back to Connecticut last summer... Um, we stayed she was like i want a cheap 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 motel and i'm like i'm gonna teach you a lesson and i'm gonna book us a cheap (laughs) motel so you can see like what that actually is because in her mind it's like oh my god it'll just be like a best western or something so i book us in a super eight in hell oh this was this was sorry this was connecticut back to california so i think we had booked it in west virginia a super eight west virginia (laughs)
1: God, I just sent a Hold shiver on. down my spine. Yeah.
0: Let me take a sip of this. Hold on. Yeah. So we get into this super eight. Immediately, smells of decomposition. It's it's pretty. It feels it feels as if there's a dead body in there for sure. Um, only I think maybe two out of the six lights in the room work, which is fine. Um, but that's not really the worst part of it. You know, we're kind of sleeping. We went out to dinner. We did all this stuff. We come back. And we go, I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I get up, turn on the light. I see about 15 roaches just scatter into various directions. And I was like, oh, Mel, wake up. (laughs) Come look. (laughs) It's like a roach infested, dead body ass motel super eight. And we, I realized this later, were the only people there. We were the only room booked for the night.
1: God bless you.
0: God did not bless me at that moment yeah. God, he, he smited me. <laughs> like,
1: I don't know if I have ever stayed in a super eight. I have stayed in a red roof inn and that was harrowing harrowing. I remember actually like <sighs> never have having felt so just gross in my life.
0: Was it on tour? no oh okay. Was, I, I thought did we stay in a red roof? Inn? I feel like we stayed in one.
1: I don't think we did. I, we stayed in the Econo Lodge.
0: Yes, we did. <laughs> With the, the woman who said the maid and pulled a gun on her. I, that was the Econo Lodge.
1: That was the Econo Lodge. And then we stayed at one more Econo Lodge, which was just as bad towards the end. But we were like, we don't care. Because like, the maid pulling the gun was at the very beginning of tour when we all still <laughs> thought that, like, we, you know. i remember it
0: was denver it was 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 definitely denver Denver. yeah um but i remember i knew the econo lodge was going to be bad because betty i think had was with us at that point and she said i think i might sleep in the van tonight (laughs) and i I, we were like what and she was like yeah i've been down this road before and we were like okay "Would, would sleeping in a car in the cold of colorado be the better alternative to sleeping in the econo lodge
1: I forgot.
0: Oh. Oh god. RIP. RIP to us and and whatever that era was. I don't I don't know what era. I could call our tour era. I, know. I don't know if it was a flop era, if it was a reformative era. I think it was an a reformative era.
1: Era, yeah. but it started it started as a flop era for sure. <laughs> like the yeah. fact that I can now stay in a like Hilton is—that's just a feather in my cap. <laughs> mm.
0: Well, to get into it, to credit first and foremost, who suggested this case? This is Shree the B five, otherwise known as—wait, what did I just say? Shrimith Parachula. Thank you for suggesting the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders and sending me into a spiral. <laughs> Hi,
1: Shrimith.
0: Shri—is it—is Shre- that what we said? Yes. Shri Shri Shre- Shre- the B. Shree the b i love it i love Shree the b um thank you for suggesting this and welcome everybody to creep time the podcast with your hosts silas dean and Stu. hi 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 how are you <laughs> i'm back on it. jeffree star um <laughs> tiktok and i need to cut that out but like
1: oh my gosh he he I makes a good point so
0: i know he makes a good point on tiktok where he's like i review makeup and he was like and here's the thing he's like i am the only person who reviews makeup who has enough money to review it honestly. Mm. And I'm like, that's really true to be honest. I feel like that's kind of true because he has this insane net worth of like 200, $300 million. Like he doesn't have to be bought by any brand deals. He's online. So like when he reviews makeup from other brands, I generally feel like it's honest unless he's just trying to like, he knows like internally because he's a CEO of his company that that's like a close competitor to his brand. So Mm -hmm. he's sort of strategically like fueling the fire of like, this is trash. I would assume like who would be close to Jeffree star in terms of makeup because his whole thing is vibrancy. I think like really pigmented, vibrant colors.
1: Well, unfortunately his, his old enemy or his enemy, I guess currently still Kat Von D
0: Kat Von D. Oh, I guess so. Does she still, she still makes makeup.
1: She still oh, yeah, she makeup, must, but it's kind of gotten really, I mean, from what, it used to be really good, like, probably 10 years ago, and I feel like now mm-hmm. nobody cares about it.
0: I don't know. I mean, a lot of makeup has changed, too. I mean, like, what was popular, I think, and probably, like, a matte look has totally changed to dewy. Like, makeup mm-hmm. just has a different, like, ebb and flow, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, unless you modify and keep with the times, like, I don't know. I don't know. I've been hearing, like, House Labs is really big right now, in Sephora, um, they're know. literally everywhere. Like I went into Sephora because I go there for skincare and like colognes and stuff. But um, occasionally I'll get makeup there. I like the Sephora collection for foundations, but mm-hmm. House Labs is pretty pricey. They're up there it, at like 30, no. 40 bucks.
1: It looks really good.
0: It does look really good. I, I think it's it's probably a decent formula. Um, couldn't beat my <laughs> elf. My elf <laughs> makeup. <go. laughs> Can like, I turn everybody on something? To <laughs>
1: How do we tie this into murder? Um.
0: I know. I was like, somehow I'm going to pivot this back to one of the most (laughs) gruesome. I'm giving myself like a release before this, but it is such a tough case. The Oklahoma Girl Scout murders that like, I, I don't know. I, I find like a natural tendency of myself where I'm like avoiding talking about it and going back into it. But it's important that I do. And I feel like it's important because I've now researched this case a lot and Out of all of the research that I've looked at, I've listened to podcasts, I've watched videos, I've read articles, barely anybody talks about the girls who were affected outside of, like, their names and their ages. The entire case is, like, centralized around, like, I I don't know, creating some, some kind of, like, weird, like, fright around the Girl Scouts, but also, like, playing into the fear of, like, camping and, like, the actual person who was behind it. They don't talk about the backstories of the girls, so... I didn't like an extra bit of research of everything I could find on these girls because I didn't really know who they were outside of the pictures that I've seen. Have you heard of the story?
1: Okay. The one component of this that I know, I think, and I'm praying to God, it's not true. They're like little girls, right?
0: They're little girls. Yeah.
1: Okay. I have heard of this case and Mm -hmm. I think this is correct me if I'm wrong, that Kristen Chenoweth, yeah. Documentary yeah. or they're going to be That's pretty recent something? too. That's pretty okay. new.
0: Um, I think it just came out, but Kristen Chenoweth, I don't know the full story, um, but I did have some friends who watched that and like reported back to me on it. She was supposed to go on this Girl Scout trip. Yes. I don't know if the story extends to the point where she was supposed to be in the tent with these girls. But what I will say, um, which is odd, is that the tent they were in they were the only tent that was sleeping three girls. Most of the tents slept four. So they were mm. down a girl. I don't know if that was Kristen Chenowith. I really do not know what her involvement was aside from like she's from Oklahoma and she was supposed to go on this encampment trip, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a brutal story. And I learned a lot about the Girl Scouts through researching it. But do you know anything outside of the Kristen Chenowith connection or just that it was little girls? Right. Like that's all I know. Okay. Okay. I mean it it is quite heavy so I I definitely will preface before we get into it that it's it's a pretty gruesome story. It is uh, very senseless, very sad as all true crime cases are, but this one this one hits especially hard for some reason. Um but the story it really ties back to this camp those two. It's um it's a camp called Camp Scott, which was this popular location. Um not only for you know Girl Scout uh, tourism, but also it's right outside of Locust Grove, Oklahoma, which is like two miles away, and that was a a small town that was like heavily dependent on tourism. Whether it was tourism from like the seasonal um, camps that would go on through the Girl Scouts, or it was people who were coming to like use the lake or use other campsites, I don't know. See the sites. Um, so this you know hit them just as hard in terms of like how much this really took down a full community like How bad this was, um, and I also didn't realize, like, while I was researching this, just how long the Girl Scouts had been around. Do you know
1: mm, if I were they're like old, yes, I would say like 1925.
0: I mean, you're somewhat close, you're it's 1912 actually, it goes back wow, to specifically okay. for the Girl Scouts. I think the Boy Scouts might even be older, yeah, I'm assuming they're older, um. Before we get into it, I should tell my horrific Girl Scout story. I was going in to buy Girl Scout, or i wasn 't going in to buy Girl Scout cooking cookies. I was going into a home goods. Can I tell you this no, and there were Girl Scouts who were like they were pitched outside of the home goods and they were selling Girl Scout cookies, and they were like, "Do you want to buy some cookies?" And I was like, "Oh, thank you so much, but no i 'm on a diet and she looked me up and down and she goes, "Oh that 's good." <sighs> i the kid or the, the... the, kid, the child the nine-year-old child in uniform she goes oh that's good <laughs> you're like and all I...
1: right <laughs> all right bitch give me five boxes oh. <laughs> of <St. Hallows. laughs>
0: i walked into the home goods i cried for a bit i came out i bought <laughs> thin <mints>. <laughs> like, <laughs> my god she was like if i'm not gonna get the sale i'm gonna shame you
1: oh, i'm gonna shame my you
0: gosh that is so but funny what... What I didn't know was that girls sell Girl Scout cookies, and it's incentivized by um, the prize is that you get to go to camp. I didn't know that. I. Uh... It may have changed. It may have changed now, but back in the seventies, that was that was a way you could get like a free um, pass to go to camp.
1: Okay, gotcha.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm sure they they probably still have some version of that, for, especially for you know kids who are Girl Scouts who maybe don't yeah. come from the means to go to camp, like maybe. That's the way in Like, if you can, like, earn your ticket into camp by selling Mm -hmm. enough Girl Scout cookies. Because that's what happened to one of these girls. So, yes, we have the Girl Scouts. Um, This is an overnight excursion, which is um, pretty common, I would say. I think the Girl Scouts has a lot of familial tradition for a lot of people. And people generally feel safe about sending their kids there. They feel good about them participating. But these families... Like, never could have imagined, like, what was going to happen at this camp in Oklahoma. So Camp Scott, like I said, it's about two miles south of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. It's a very rural area, this place. There's really not a lot that's around. Um, It's really just this spot and then, like, local spots and, like, food spots and lakes. But the story centralizes around three girls. They would include Lori Lee Farmer, who was only eight years old. Doris Denise Milner, uh, who went by Denise, and she was 10, and Michelle Heather Gousset, who was 9. Um, I've heard a couple of people refer to her last name as Goose, uh, but I believe it's pronounced Gusset. Uh, And I, like I said, I don't see a lot of other podcasts or reports on this that dive into the girls and dive into who they were. So I want to give you a little bit of backstory before I get into the actual story and just tell you who they were, where they came from. And what's insane is that they all have final letters. Did you know about this? What? So like the, um, the Girl Scouts, Like, it, basically what happened when they got there, the whole camp was kind of shut down because it started storming. So they kept the girls in their tents and they were like, just write a letter home on the first night to be like the first day of camp. So all three of these girls wrote letters home that would never make it home. Oh and it is the last letter they would all write just <sighs> hours before they were killed. Mm. it's bone chilling, but I wanted to read them at least to give you like a perspective and a bit of like a a POV of their voice, who they were, yeah. who their families were. Um, just because no one's, I'd never heard of that. No one's ever talked about it in this case. So I'm going to start with Doris Denise Milner, who I said goes by Denise. She was the oldest of the girls, 10 years old. And she was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So her mother actually later said that she really wasn't, very excited to go to camp. She was very on the fence about it because she was one of these girls who had sold cookies to get to camp and she had never been. Um, So she was very, very nervous, very anxious about it, but she was an exceptional girl. I mean, straight A student. She'd just been accepted into a pretty prestigious magnet school um, for middle school, uh, which she was going to attend in the fall and she was really excited about it. Um, But she's uh, scheduled to attend this camp with the girls. So she just really wants to stay home with her five-year-old sister and her mother, but her mom actually convinced her. And she was like, no, I think this would be good for you. Like you'll gain a little bit of independence. You'll go out. And if you decide you don't like it after day one or two, you can always call home and I'm going to come down. I'm going to get you. Right. So I have her final letter that she wrote that night in the tent to her mom. So she, it reads, uh, dear mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained, I have three new friends, Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Mm -mm. Which is like, they really don't teach kids to write letters like that anymore. Mm -mm. I feel like we learned a little bit of like, I I don't know, maybe maybe a little bit of like um, writing letters, structuring letters in like elementary school, but... I don't know, to sign a letter like, your loving child, Denise, yeah. it just seems so sweet. Mm-hmm. Like, what a well-mannered like kid.
1: So formal, yeah.
0: But it's it's chilling to read these and to know that like what was to come just later in the night is just so, so harrowing. But she references two people in that letter. She says Lori and Michelle, who were the other two girls. So there's Michelle Heather Gousset, who was nine, And she was from a town called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and she was a bright and athletic girl and totally different. Like, she was really excited to go to camp, actually. I think she had been the year before, so she already knew, like, what the deal was. She had friends that were probably coming back. So what she was mostly concerned about before leaving was that her parents were going to take care of her plants because she had plants at home. So, I know, it's, like reading these in the context, I I read all of this after I knew the story and it was, this is why I was in a bad place yesterday, Stu.
1: Yeah. Oh my God.
0: Heavy as hell. But, um, her father later recalled this, uh, sort of eerie departure with her, which he dropped her off, um, for camp and said that the goodbye was almost like she was saying goodbye forever, which was strange. Like he, he really like, later thought about this and he made a statement saying like it almost felt like an odd premonition like like she she was saying he couldn't understand like why she was saying goodbye in such a definitive way it was very off-putting to the parents mm-hmm. um so they say goodbye they have full faith in her she's going to be fine she's done this before she did it last year she also wrote a letter home but she wrote it to her aunt so her letter reads dear aunt karen how are you i'm fine i'm writing from camp We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tentmates are in the last tent in our unit. My tentmates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Uh, And then we would have Lori, who was the last girl, and she is the youngest of the girls. And she was eight years old, and she was actually the youngest girl of all of the girls on this retreat. I think there were like 120 of them there or something. So, Lori, she was also from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, just like Denise, and she was also apprehensive about going because she hadn't been, she's eight years old, Um, but her mother also wanted to push her because she thought it would be a good thing for her based on, you know, being in the scouts already and selling the cookies, so her mother actually chose the exact campsite and the exact week she would go, and she's talked about this in interviews too, and like the immense uh, sort of guilt that she's felt over that, even though it was nothing she could have foreseen, completely out of her control. And it was a horrible, horrible thing to happen. But Lori writes a letter that night as well, um, that reads as follows Dear Mom, Dad, Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, and I think those are her sisters and her one brother. We're getting ready for bed. It's 745. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner, and we're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. And Mm. on the first night of that retreat, all three of these girls would, of course, enter Camp Scott, and they would never make it home. So before I get into what exactly happened, had you ever heard anything close to the backstories of those girls? Why has that been omitted from any of the the press coverage on this and the storytelling?
1: I know, especially the storytelling element. Um, It gives you such uh, immediate context into what their little personalities were probably like, which makes it just that much more upsetting and disturbing, yeah. but I can already start to picture like who they kind of are just based off of their, their writing style and yeah, their, their ages. Voice. Totally. Yeah.
0: It also, it reminds me because I think it's uh, shockingly like easy to forget sometimes with this case, because so much of it is focused on the actual perpetrator to remember that these were girls, they were children. But when mm-hmm. I hear, hear this in their voice, I'm reminded of just how young they are. And how impressionable and scared. And it's, you know, in a, f- in a foreign place where, like, you know, they don't really know. They've never been camping or they've never been with the Girl Scouts camping. They're with new people. Like, so many elements here that compromised safety. And we'll get into a little bit later about how the Girl Scouts actually handled this. And how mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot that goes on there as well. But I should run you through what actually happened. So... On June twelfth of nineteen seventy-seven, this was a Sunday morning, and it would mark another round of Girl Scouts coming through on buses for the overnight excursion on these grounds. So I guess, like seasonally, they just basically do trips, um, like Girl Scout retreats, in like two-week increments. So this was going to be the June trip uh, for, I think, the latter or the the middle part of June. So the way that it worked was that rather than like families actually bringing them to like Locust Grove or to Camp Scott, they would kind of come to like a shuttle bus location. Uh, So a lot of the shuttle buses were leaving from Tulsa and they would get on these buses that were organized by the Girl Scouts and the buses would take them into Camp Scott. So throughout the day, the buses are kind of piling into the camp and you know, it's like the normal stuff. It's organization. It's really exciting. They're getting tent assignments. They're getting grouped together. Um, But it's around 7 PM on the first night that that thunderstorm that they mentioned rolls in. So they had just finished dinner and it is starting to downpour over this camp and it would remain raining almost the entire night. So that meant that the girls couldn't do any of the first night activities. They couldn't do any of the bonding stuff around the campfire. They were just instructed to go back to their tents and kind of lights out by seven forty 45, 8 PM. Right. So that's when they tell them, they're like, you know, write letters home, like just something to occupy the time. You can play card games it would still probably be fun. Did you ever do a camping trip like that when you were younger?
1: Um, We did definitely not when I was like eight or 10, but our school besides not the one that we had to do as seniors, but we did um, little away camps. I went to a place called Camp Canuga, Camp Cheerio. We had to do similar kind of like little kid camp. Mm
0: -hmm. So I'm familiar. It's wild to think that like, Kids now going camping, they but they probably take their phones with them. I'm assuming it's probably a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. Because I d- I did um, nature's classroom, which was a week long excursion camping when I was ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like I, that's immediately what I thought of as I was reading this. Like I I could remember like we were busting and all of the organization, the tent assignments, counselors break you off, and like the first night is really like campfire activities and like night hikes. Yeah. And I don't know, it was such a good time, but that that's what I was envisioning while reading through this story. So like I said, it's lights out around 7.45, 8 p.m. Uh, but then that very same night, this is around 1.30 in the morning, one of the camp counselors, she kind of wakes up from her tent and she hears a strange noise. So it's still raining at this point, but she decides she's going to get up with her umbrella and she's going to get up with her flashlight and she's going to walk down a path because she either had to go to the bathroom or she like, she also wanted to like investigate what that noise was. So she's making her way down the path. And when I heard the stories do, it gave me so, so many chills. Like the noise is described as like a very guttural and kind of low moaning sound, like a, like a whimpering, but also like a grunting. And she like, wasn't sure if it was a person or if it was an animal. So she's like traveling towards the noise in the rain, with this flashlight, and she's getting closer to it. So she once she finally got like down the trail a bit, she shined the flashlight in the um, in the direction and the noise stops. So then she turns in another direction and the noise starts up again, shines the light back, the noise stops. So at this point, she had convinced herself this counselor, she's like this is some kind of animal and I I don't want to confront it especially not like in like a storm condition, so I'm just going to back up. I'm going to go back to my tent. But she remembered as she was falling asleep, she could still hear that noise, that like bizarre the grunting, that like guttural grunting coming from the woods. It's f-ing chilling. But this same counselor um, would actually make the first discovery in this case. So she goes to sleep that night. And then she wakes up the next morning by 6 a.m. And she's going to head towards the camp showers, which were closest to tent number eight, which is where these three girls were located. Um, I will say that I have researched this with like several reputable sources and they're giving different accounts of which tent it was, whether it was tent eight or tent seven, but I don't think that the tent number is important. It's important to remember that their tent, the girl's tent, was the furthest away from the counselor's tent. It was actually partially obstructed too because it was like adjacent to or behind the camp showers. So it was kind of it was like far out from like the group, you could say. Mm-hmm. So it's 6 a.m. She's making her way towards the showers and she's walking down the path when she stumbles upon something that's really chilling. She sees off the path on this tree, there's like a pile of sleeping bags. And she's like, What the hell? So she she gets off the track and the path and she's, you know, walking down towards the tree when she sees a girl who's laying there sleeping, like partially out of her sleeping bag. And she's like panicking. Cause she's like, Oh my God. Like did this girl sleep out here all night? Like it was pouring off. All- she must be freezing. Like she's probably soaked. Like she's freaking out. So she gets down even closer when she realizes that she's not sleeping. She's a bludgeoned child.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So full adrenaline sets in. She races back to the other counselors and they immediately go into panic mode and they start doing a head count to find all of the girls and make sure everyone's accounted for. And of course they find that in Kent or tent number eight, none of the girls are there. The tent is empty. It's so much like the discovery is probably the, I think the worst part of this, but what would come later, I think what the evidence is also really harrowing. So, this entire day just turns into like this chaotic and horrific array of discoveries and cover-ups. And for one, uh, this is where we'll get into a little bit of how the Girl Scouts handled this. The families were called, um, in a, a very specific order. So they were called by the regional director of the Girl Scouts as to what happened. But the way that the calls happened, the Girl Scouts director, this was found in phone records, called their insurance company first. They then mm. called their attorneys they then called the parents and even on the phone. And it's not clear whether this was the judgment of the Girl Scouts director or this came from their attorneys on the phone, calling the parents individually. They said, your daughter has died. She, there was an accident. She died in the night. They did not tell the parents. They did not tell the parents one, that there were other girls that died that night, but they specifically told them it was an accident. They did not mention they were murdered. And the, uh, they give no specifics, no details. Parents are grief-stricken, confused, spiraling on these phones, and there's nothing that they're offering them. And truthfully, I mean, at this point, they really didn't know very much, but they certainly knew. They certainly knew these girls were murdered. But that's just, a, like, a little sliver of um, how the the Girl Scouts actually handled this. And I believe the parents in the 80s would go on to pursue this legally. Um I don't know what the outcome was of that, but I know one of the families opted not to participate for whatever reason. Mm. So what goes on during the day? Now, when police arrived at the scene, it was really shocking for the community and, and for law enforcement. All three girls were found piled up on the tree and one was described in the original report as outside or visible outside of her sleeping bag, while the other two bodies were described as stuffed and crumpled at the bottom of one of the other sleeping bags. And this was just outside of the Kiowa encampment, I think is how it's pronounced. The immediate evidence was suggesting that the girls had been attacked in their sleep, but one of them was either led or she was dragged while still alive a ways away from their tent. Uh, But they had all been beaten. They were sexually assaulted. And their final moments were the result of being bludgeoned and strangled. As for additional evidence that was found at the scene, this included a red flashlight, which had one smudged fingerprint on it, but it was too smudged for them to ever get, like, a print that they could match up to somebody. And they also found only one footprint, which was near the tent, and this was of a size nine-and-a-half men's shoe. So the the horror of the scene um, immediately calls for an evacuation by 10 a.m., and the entire site is shut down permanently after 50 years of operation and the people of locust grove sort of drastically changed their perspective on the town and its safety within one day like businesses were closed um they probably wouldn't be patroned again many of them would close completely children were no longer allowed to walk outside alone they were no longer allowed to play outside while this was going on it was it was chaotic for for this town they had never experienced something like this and, you know, there were some of the girls um, who who were there, who I think have gone on to, like, make statements about this later on, talking about, like, what the experience of that was like as a child and the shock and, and the sort of, like, I, I don't know how to describe it, like, the coming of age moment of of realizing that suddenly you're not invincible, you know, as a child. Yeah,
1: well, your innocence is gone all Completely. of a sudden.
0: Completely. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the experience of this day. And just, I, I feel like that's the best way to convey how horrifying it really was for everybody. They had hundreds of nearby law enforcement officials who were brought in to investigate and search the area after what happened. And many of these men and women who were in the field, they had never seen something like this ever. Like they had, they had a lot of them had never even seen murder, let alone like such a gruesome and grisly murder of these girls Forensic examiners uh, were brought in and they were able to conclude that it was more than likely that two of the girls, like I said, um, had their lives ended while in the tent but were then carried off. But Doris Denise Milner, and we don't know why it was her who was 10, was made to walk for an unknown reason. Uh, When she was found, her hands had been bound behind her back using a small rope as well as masking tape, which was found on the body. And... The investigation is massive. Um, They would end up with a suspect and interview list that surpassed more than 120 people with no leads for the majority of this case. Uh, And the news coverage around this is insane. Like, everybody is dying to know what happened, who did this, because they're still on the loose. They're out there somewhere. So then we get the first major break in the case, which comes from a nearby cave. But before I go any further, any thoughts and everything I just laid on you? Cause I know it was, I was very heavy. It was a lot.
1: Oh, oh my gosh. Um, just to think that this would have to have been so premeditated to the degree, like to, to know that. I, Cause I just don't think you go into a camp without mm-hmm. an idea of how you're going to, execute this and I mean obviously any attack on children and sexual assault on children is just so incredibly disgusting and
0: it's a it's a horrific evil. story, yeah. It's, it's evil. And do you like, know anything whoever, about what comes next? Like, because you're you're kind of like dead on the trail. I have no idea
1: what comes next. Like, I am literally on pins and needles to to, to know who this person was that did this and why. Well,
0: you're you're pretty dead on with like obviously saying that this was premeditated. It's it it's not very shocking, but there is evidence that comes to light of just how planned this was, and that yeah. other people knew about it being planned. You're going to lose your mind over this. Um, oh, my God. So let's see. So there is a uh, break in this case that is made with a nearby cave that's just off the campground. So this ties back to a local hunter who had been near the campsite after this had all you know, gone down. And he finds this cave and he reported what he found inside to police. It contained a number of items, but of the most critical of these items to the case Uh, It had a newspaper and it also had masking tape. Now, this is why these two items are important. So the flashlight that was found with the girls um, or on top of one of the girls, as it was described, it had newspaper that was stuffed inside uh, up against the battery to prevent it from rattling while they were walking. It also had some kind of masking tape, which was used on the rope that had bound Denise Milner but it had masking tape that was taped over the actual bulb of the light. And there was a pinprick that was made. So whoever had this flashlight was using it so they could travel kind of stealth, you know, like they could use not a lot of light, but still get around Mm -hmm. and nobody would hear it. Barely anybody would see it. So those are key, key pieces of evidence because the paper is actually matched to the exact paper that was found in that flashlight. So it's very clear that whoever did this to these girls had been in that cave so it also had a pair of sunglasses and this is where things get insane so this would uncover another link to the case which was not previously disclosed one of the counselors prior to this incident had reported a theft to like their head counselor at the camp and this was on the summer um during like a training session before any of the girl scouts got there they probably took like a week or so to just i don't know get their bearings, learn the camp, learn like what the itinerary and the activities were. So this counselor reported that in her tent, someone had like ransacked her stuff and stole her sunglasses, but had also eaten her food and left a handwritten note. I'm going to get you the exact quote of what it said. This handwritten note that's left says, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. (gasps) This was at the beginning of the summer before any of the girls had come for the Girl Scouts. So she reported this at the time to the head counselor. And this was, I think, brought back to the Girl Scouts. But after review, it was concluded that this was most likely some kind of a prank. And they didn't take it seriously. So it was just kind of left out. You know, no one ever reported back about it. And even after this happened to the girls, the Girl Scouts were very hush about it until the sunglasses were recovered and this counselor comes forward. She goes, those are my sunglasses. Like my
1: stomach is in
0: knots right now. It's unbelievable. Like the things that they knew and the things that they concealed, um, just as a way to save face, cover their ass, whatever they were doing. But to know that like, this was not only premeditated, but it was warned. It was warned.
1: Yeah. Like it could have been prevented.
0: Absolutely. So, Like I said, shockingly, this is chalked up to a prank, um, and the Girl Scout overnight uh, trips would commence regardless. So the heightened criticism comes back to the Girl Scouts for concealing this and having not disclosed it to any of the parents prior to June 12th, but there is definitive evidence, if I could take you back to the cave, that is also found. There are two pictures um, that are located in that cave, and the pictures are less important because they're just kind of pictures of, like, girls, women. Um, mm-hmm. but it's important that the pictures are traced back to where they were developed. So these are traced back to a development um, site that was located in the granite reformatory prison and belonged. These pictures belong to Jean Leroy Hart. We've got a suspect. Mm. So who was Jean? So Jean is a locust grove native. He had been in that town for pretty much his whole life but he had formerly been imprisoned under some really violent and horrific, uh, sexual assault charges where he just four years prior, I think, um, in the summer of four years, four years prior to what happens, not at the Girl Scout camp, but when he escapes, he is incarcerated in 1966 because he abducted two pregnant women outside of a nightclub and had like viciously assaulted these women. Um, mm. I don't remember reading in the report if they actually got away, but they, they must have. I don't think they were murdered because believe it or not, despite abducting them and raping them, he is put on parole. He is not even sentenced to prison in 1966. <sighs> he gets sent to prison because following being on parole, he breaks parole and then is caught on a burglary charge. So that's what puts him in prison in 66. But he escapes twice insane like it's insane Insane. so he gets out the first time I think the first time when he's detained but then he's brought back and then eventually escapes a second time and this is where we eventually get like confirmation from testimony of who he escaped with because I think he left with two other uh, inmates and they confirmed that that was like a trick that he used to do that he would like get a flashlight somehow and he would put masking tape or some kind of like cover over the bulb and he would put a pinprick in it so you could travel in the dark without being caught so, of course, this matches up to, to him as the lead suspect. Mm-hmm. So he had escaped from prison in Locust Grove. And this was like, yeah, he had, been on, he had been on the run for years at this point. So he had never been caught. Parents were never notified that that had happened years and years ago. They were never notified about the strange warning signs or, or the theft that had gone on at the park, any of those activities. So it's believed that he was hiding out on that campsite and in that cave for a considerable amount of time. And he had planned after observing the Girl Scout, you know, trips coming in seasonally, that he was going to take these girls. So now that we've got a suspect, the hunt ensues for this man. Uh, He's out there somewhere hiding, but the FBI is closing in on him because at this point, this is a national case. So somehow, I'm I, not quite sure how, they're able to pinpoint exactly where he is. Um, I think through several friends that were kind of uh, either feeding him or they were like letting him stay in the basement. They were letting him like, they were helping him in some way kind of stay in hiding but someone confesses, like someone comes clean or talks behind someone's back so they're able to close in by April of 1978 and then this is where the story shifts to something that's even stranger and it's really menacing so we've now got him we've got gene leroy hart um his trial would take place in 1979 and the proceedings are horrific for these families so at this point in the trial um they're getting to the point where they have to show photos of the crime scene to the jury to explain what had actually happened and families were asked to leave the room as it was so bad and insufferable but They refused. The majority of those families stayed because they they've said later in statements from what I've researched that they as much as they understood about the girls, you know, that they gave life to, they needed to understand their death to Mm -hmm. really have a certain amount of closure, which I don't think, you know, anyone or a normal person could really understand. I, I think that that was it was maybe something that they needed at the time to make it feel real in some odd way, because it's it's beyond comprehension. A lot of this. So the pictures are shown, the trial proceeds, and by March 30th, 1979, in what would be one of the most shocking upsets of a national murder case, and despite all of the circumstantial evidence to support that he is responsible, he is acquitted on all three counts of the murders. It's, it's like, it's, so the jury had ruled that, They just did not believe there was enough concrete evidence to support that he was in that camp on that night and had done that to those girls, you know, because they have a, they have a footprint, they have a fingerprint, a smudged fingerprint that they can't match. But they certainly have evidence that he was most likely in a cave that was a, a bit of a ways away from the campsite, but the jury felt they could not definitively rule and sentence him based on the idea that he was in the camp that night. Despite this very violent, you know, history of sexual assault and abduction.
1: I'm, like, thinking about, like, matches with handwriting to that note or something.
0: Nothing. I mean, I think even that matched, actually. But, like, it was still ruled as inconclusive for some reason. I don't know. I mean, they just... The jury felt there wasn't enough evidence, even though everybody knows it was this man. Mm-hmm. So... Of course it's it's a, it's a national upset it's infuriating um and the ramifications of this verdict are devastating for the families but also um because of like the huge coverage around this at the time I mean I think this is what really spiraled the story into something new because it was a horrific headline at first but it's kind of like the Casey Anthony effect where the headline is terrible and everybody is waiting you know for for the sentence the assumed sentencing but when it doesn't come it like solidifies this horrible mark on an already horrible story that justice was never served to somebody it's awful so despite being found not guilty he is returned to prison uh, because remember he had escaped from prison so at this point he was caught and he still had a former sentence to finish in another shocking upset just two months after he was found not guilty but he's back in prison he dies in prison of a heart attack So with his death, I think a lot of the closure that these families needed kind of went with him because they knew that he would he would never see the kind of justice that he he was probably deserving of. But he didn't get to serve a considerable amount of time. I think that's what I was trying to say is that he mm-hmm. he didn't serve any of the punishment that he was deserving of. How do you feel about that? Well, are you are you just also- as shocked as I am? Because it's I am so I can't understand because, it
1: because because you know we hear in murder cases a lot of times like the jury d- doing something like this the person gets acquitted like I'm thinking like OJ like it's, it was so yeah. obvious and yet he was acquitted but I think a lot of that had to do with the fame the notoriety mm-hmm. the fact that it was a woman his wife like these are children nine times out of ten a jury is going to
0: ride on emotion right on I emotion. Mean, in this case it's the, it's the truth it is the absolute truth yeah. i mean there's really no way around that in my mind that it yeah. was clearly him um
1: so i am shocked like right. i absolutely especially back then like in the 70s i am
0: yeah i mean i'm very curious to like actually dig into the defense around this because i'm interested to hear about like what kind of jury was selected because we know shady goes yeah. on with like old juries, old court systems. Like I just don't know what the incentive is to protect a man like this. I think it more so has to do with probably the defense attorney and trying to like get another notch in the belt sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Another, like you said, another feather for the cap, <laughs> different context, oh. but <laughs> yeah. Um, But I mean, if we're talking about closure for these families, of course they wouldn't see closure from him being sentenced. However, this was before the era of DNA evidence. Mm So by 1989, we now have DNA evidence and a DNA test was conducted that confirmed three of the five samples from evidence that was collected at the scene matched samples of Hart's DNA. So then this would later see a further investigation by 2008 um, where another sample from one of the girls' pillowcases, which I think I read was a seminal stain. Um, This was conducted, but the stain had eroded to the point where the test was inconclusive. So then money is raised again. Because at this point, I mean, the state is not funneling anything more into this. Um, Yeah. So it's completely public funded. Um, I think it was actually a sheriff uh, from Oklahoma who, like, did the fundraising for this, like, really rallied people to raise, I think, $30,000 so they could do another test. And by 2018, um, they finish up that round of fundraising and they conduct a final DNA test of the evidence. And by 2022, the results were publicly released with the permission of the families who were still living, uh, which almost definitively ruled that without a doubt, Hart was involved in what happened in those woods. And these families would finally see some form of closure as to what happened to their daughters out there, even though they knew, everybody knew. Yeah but because the evidence didn't see any further hearings or like trials, and this was kind of like a privately funded thing that was then publicly released. Um, even though it suggests that Hart is of course, likely involved, it is still listed as an unsolved case on paper Hmm. to this day. And it would go down. I know it's, it's, it's really thought of as one of the most horrific and widely covered murders in modern history. Um, and it has infam- infamously, people have clung to this name uh, of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And that is everything we know about that case.
1: I think what makes me so mad is that the closure I would want as a parent, even if this is selfish, is I would want him to say that he did it. Yeah. Yeah, I did it. And An they admission never of guilt. That. Yeah, just something. Yeah. yeah, just something to know. <sighs>
0: it's pretty remarkable how these parents have, have, I've, I've read about the parents quite a bit as well. Um, I know Lori Farmer's mother is a, she is a huge advocate and I think she, she even started an organization, um, for parents who have had, had their children murdered, you know, like support Mm -hmm. groups, you know, resources, um, financial resources for them. But they've also, They have passed bills. They have done public speaking. um, But it doesn't really erase, I think, the immense grief that they feel. I specifically remember reading about Denise's mom and says that she has never been to her daughter's grave. She can't do it. And this is like 30 years later.
1: I think that a a child being murdered is the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to you. A child dying is awful. A child being murdered is... Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah, she, her God, mother said. that really said, makes me so mad. It's it's so it's infuriating, and I think what makes me the most upset about it is that odd behavior like that wasn't reported. It was intentionally yes. concealed ahead of allowing children to go to this camp. I don't, I can't understand that. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean.
1: That and also just thinking about all of the opportunities they had to put this man back in jail. Like, he escaped. He Twice. Po- Twice. Twice. Well, you know, like, clearly the abduction of the two pregnant women. Like, it just... It, they had all that evidence, too, in the case, I'm sure. Like, his record. And still, people mm-hmm. let him off. Like, was wild to me.
0: I was watching the Staircase and I almost wonder if it was a similar cuz I know this is a tactic for defense attorneys um when like they know their case is kind of sunk and like the jury yeah. is probably running off of like very very apparent circumstantial evidence and like high emotions. They give like a little um closing argument to the jury basically where they they like reaffirm what their job is and they say your job is not to ride on your emotions. Your job is to be a neutral spectator to the evidence that exists. They literally did this in the staircase case. Um, Your job is to assess what we have available and decide whether or not that is enough to support that this person is without a doubt responsible. And it's a very manipulative tactic because like beyond riding on emotion, I mean like you can ride on somebody's past of like a violent past, a criminal history, or like the evidence that he was living in a cave outside of this camp like what like who else the, do you think did oh this my, like
1: exactly exactly see that's my point is that there was nobody else there were no other who who else could it have been like it, it, yeah i mean that's what's baffling to me he's living in a cave like that's not normal you're just living in a cave outside of a campground for little girls not also normal. i'm, I'm sorry escaped? a
0: cave that had evidence that was tied back to the literal crime scene newspaper and masking tape that was found i didn't even mention this the masking tape was found that was found in the cave had a yeah. rip a rip on it that matched the exact like end of the rip of the tape that was found on denise's what? arms like <laughs> i guess like the argument they were saying they're like well although those are his belongings there's no evidence he was in that cave i'm like what the f- are we doing like what are we talking about like i yeah i could never be I could never be like an attorney. I, I'm too much of a loose kid.
1: No, I. it Doesn't it blow your mind? That was what I was starting to think about too. When you were describing the, the trial, can you imagine being that defense attorney and having to being I know. being a defense attorney for a criminal defense attorney must be such a exercise for the brain. Like, because mm-hmm. we yeah. all have our guts and we all feel when something is off and you're just right. literally training yourself to not care.
0: Yeah. I mean, there <laughs> are some that don't, there are, there are some that throw cases completely. I mean, I've I've yeah. read about that. I've seen defense attorneys who like, they have no further, you know, arguments to make. They don't call any mm-hmm. witnesses. That's happened in some pretty famous cases actually, but yeah, I, I don't really know. I understand that it is, he was definitely like a publicly appointed defense attorney, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you could rewire your brain to do something like that and to try to convince people that like someone who was so clearly guilty was not. I mean, even to like, I don't know, get it, try to get a plea deal if you pled guilty mm-hmm. and maybe like had it like a, a lesser sentencing, because I think if he was found guilty, they probably put him to death.
1: Yeah. I, I think oh, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think he was in the in death Oklahoma? penalty
0: around. Yeah. Death penalty was definitely around in Oklahoma. Oh, for, for sure. sure. Death penalty 1970s. like only
1: very recently was not a thing anymore. I'm pretty sure.
0: I, I think it's still around. I was reading about something in either South or North Carolina. Did we talk about this last time? Where they've run <laughs> so out of, I don't know if it's a supply chain issue or it had anything to do with, like I don't know, shipping ramifications from COVID, but they ran out of whatever they use for lethal injections. Oh, and wow. They reverted back to Firing Squad, Death by Firing Squad. Have you read wow. anything about this? This no. is in 2022. Whoa. I read that and I was like, holy shit. Like, Death by Firing Squad? That's, I don't know why that's like very scary to think about. Of course, the people on death row, that's a whole different conversation, but... I don't know. I, I just had never in, in a million years imagined that like we could go back to something like that. It it feels in my mind, it feels like going back to like, I don't know. Like, it feels
1: barbaric a little bit. It feels bit. Like, like beheading
0: it's... executions. And I'm not trying to be an yeah. apologist or anything, but like it just that's no, how no, it no. struck me where I was like, holy shit, this feels like the chair. Like this feels like putting yeah. someone to the chair.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ugh. I guess not to be so morbid, but with death by firing squad, I guess they turn you around and then it happens. So I guess it's not like you're staring them down as it's about to occur, but yeah, it just feels very barbaric and it's it's shocking. It's very shocking as hell. Yeah.
0: Um, I wonder where that, where that did actually happen. Hold on. Death by firing squad. It was either North or South Carolina.
1: Please say it's South.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, I was like, Stu. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's South Carolina.
1: Yeah.
0: So it looks like the only states that are still um, petitioning to practice this are Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Utah, as well as South Carolina. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to have put you through that. I know that was a very heavy case, but it was a request and... It's really, it's shocking. It's a shocking case, and I wish it had a better it's outcome. So sh- I really want to watch
1: that Kristen Chenoweth documentary now.
0: Yeah, I would watch it. Can you, you
1: to- imagine, I- it, like, what that must feel like for her to know she was about to go there?
0: Yeah. And- I'm, I'm curious, like, if she was supposed to be, maybe this is a reach, but was she supposed to be the fourth girl in that tent? That's why they were down a girl?
1: If that is true, like, I am. <sighs>
0: Some kind of divine oh intervention, gosh. like insane yeah. survivor's guilt. But yeah, I mean, their tent was the only tent that was down a girl. They All the tents slept for girls.
1: I mean, look I'd also be curious to know, like, the... I, and this is kind of why I want to watch the documentary. The layout of this campground, like, how the tents were kind of arranged. Because... I do oh, think it's it fascinating. Yeah. I feel like it's fascinating to think about um the degree in which Jean or whoever, but Jean had to plan out this attack. And mm-hmm. also the fact that the girls were they found with any sort of like tape over their mouths or anything, or they just kept quiet the whole time?
0: So I think what had actually happened, um, the way it was described in the report, two of the girls I think were pretty instantly killed within the tent okay. um they were bludgeoned so i think that before they were killed in their sleep i think like bludgeoned okay. in their sleep and then there was evidence that he assaulted them even after he killed them yeah. um but denise the oldest 10 years old was still alive um so she had probably seen this happen and i think to say like you would be in shock or that you would be you know paralyzed within your body is is beyond you know, a necessary statement. I, I don't even think she could comprehend what she was seeing, let alone take any sort of action, any and it's sort really of survival dark ins- too.
1: She might not have even like known what the heck was going on. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I, I, I guess it comes to the question of like, why didn't she scream? Unless he bludgeoned them, went to her next, and you know, told her like, if you say anything, I'll kill you. You know, something to yeah. some sort of scare tactic to keep her quiet. But. No, I don't think they were found with any sort of tape over their mouths. Um, Mm. It was just Denise who was bound. She had her hands behind her back. So she really had no, like, physical defense once he took her out there.
1: Do they have any theories about um, the, like, grunting noise that that counselor heard? Like, do they think it was him dragging the...
0: No, I... It's shocking because I had never heard that in any of the research, not even in, like, the the previous podcasts. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I watched, oh, God, I'm forgetting of the name of it. It was some documentary that was really well done on this um, that mentioned that counselor having that, like, 1.30 a.m. experience. And Mm. she's still not sure whether or not it was him, although it's more than likely it was. Yeah, Um, It's just so... it's so chilling to think think about like people like stumbling upon something and like being a hair away from death or tragedy like that like there's a really famous story of um during like the 10 but the 10 uh bundy era in california in hollywood people like doing a night hike and like stumbling upon one of his bodies while he was there and like hitting the leg in the dark and being like, what was that? And like thinking they tripped over a rock or something. And then continuing on, like he told that story later after he was caught. I'm pretty sure it was Ted Bundy. It's gotta be Ted Bundy. But yeah, let me send you a picture of um, wild. I know. I'm going to send you a picture of the actual camp. Let's see.
1: Are you texting it to me?
0: I'm going to text it to you.
1: Okay, let me grab my phone.
0: Do we have a chat feature in here? Maybe I could just chat it to you. I've never done that. So for anyone who can't see this, obviously, the way I can describe it again is that It's basically a ring of tents. This is labeling it as tent number seven, although, like I said, I've read in several reports that it was tent number eight. The counselor's tent is the furthest, I believe, from the victim's tent. So it kind of goes in like a, I don't know, like a half circle or like you could say a horseshoe. And the counselor's tent, the view is partially obstructed from the showers. And then there is like a campfire that's kind of like A bit of a ways away, but kind of to the center of all the tents. And then the girls' tent, tent number 7 or 8, is closest to the latrine. The showers are at the same place where they have, like, the kitchen and the storage, so says this map.
1: Do you know what strikes me about this? Is that if you're in the counselor's tent, you're obstructed by the kitchen and the...
0: Yeah, that's what I was just saying. Yeah, you that's literally as it was described. You can't see, like, the girls' tent. I'm surprised they didn't do, like night checks Uh, but maybe that wasn't a thing like maybe I, i hear a lot of stories from like you know the 70s the 60s like people didn't even lock their doors like it was a different era of people feeling safe or like nothing would go wrong
1: oh my gosh they dragged he dragged them a far way away
0: yeah yeah it was i mean it was definitely off the main trail but shocking The whole thing is shocking and disturbing oh my gosh the pictures of their tent also give me chills because i think i had envisioned when i first heard the story that it was kind of like a um it was like a tent that you would you would set up versus like this is it is a tent but it's more of like a cabin tent i guess you could say did you see a picture of it i'll send you one
1: no send me one That's what I was trying to think the whole time you were describing too. I was thinking, okay, these are probably like those little tents that we had at camp where they were like more like little cabins.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it had a proper like wooden door or anything. I think it was just like a curtain that was closed.
1: Yeah. It's just so foul to think about him walking in here.
0: I know, I know. Plotting to do so, I wonder, I mean, if he had left that note at the beginning of um the summer, I'm curious to to know like why he why he chose to do it the way that he did, the night that he did, like why it that's really like the big miss of this outside of him never seeing justice is that no one ever really got to hold him accountable for for the why. Like there's no motive for any of it.
1: And it's also bizarre that he didn't have, because as you were describing this, I was like, okay, this is going to be some weird, like, uh, pedophile. He's got a history of pedophilia. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy that he attacked children. Like, it's kind of bizarre. I mean. Well,
0: because of his previous history. Because those were adult women that he had attacked before. That's
1: kind of what I'm getting at. Like, a lot of times people that attack children are they're pedophiles like they purposely Mm -hmm. are going after children so it's
0: specifically he just he was like a violent sexual deviant who just wanted to go after anybody it seemed and he just went for the most vulnerable people it could be a pregnant woman it could be a child
1: he's also so gross i just saw a photo of him
0: yeah he's horrible absolutely horrible um but yeah, I I mean, researching the case, as difficult as it was, I'm happy that I, I got to do it on my own outside of listening to the podcast and, you know, getting to watch a few different, like, I would say versions of the story because I did see some conflicting information. But this is the crux of the story. And yeah, I think just doing a lot of the research on the backstory of the girls was the most helpful for me just to give like a, a little more context and to personify them a little bit beyond the pictures that I've seen.
1: Yes, but even looking, I just looked at their pictures, I can match, I think, who, based off each of the characters I kind of created in my head from your description of those letters, like, it gives it even more color and yeah, makes it even deeper for me. Ugh.
0: I know, looking at their pictures, it's a lot harder after the story as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, because I haven't seen in any of the maps where the actual cave was located, how far away it was. Because I wondered if that played at all into the evidence that was presented to the jury. I mean, maybe that was something they argued. They were like, well, the cave is like three miles away. So although it's technically like on this land, is it really in the camp, you know?
1: It looks like a sort of a weird like cave cabin type of thing.
0: You found a picture of the I just saw a
1: picture, yeah.
0: Let me look it up and see what I can find. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, really freaky. I don't like, and you, you can definitely see some of the evidence, too, that was found there. I think they have the pictures of the women that he had. Um, although, surprisingly, in some of the research, I really didn't see much of anything that talked about who those pictures were of. Um, if they were related to this man or if they were like... I, I don't know who those women are, those two. If it's the same woman?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not sure. But with that... <sighs> I guess we, we can conclude the story because that is all that we know of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. I am very grateful that you sat through this with me because I know that was a heavy case. Um, thank mm-hmm. you for listening to all of it. Um, but yeah, next time we'll do an unsolved case. We'll give ourselves a break so it's not so it's not so um, definitive and sad.
1: Yeah, and we'll have to each watch the the documentary and see what else with we do. With Kristen with yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Imagine that she's not involved at all. She's like, yeah, I was like, kind of going to go to that. I was also kind of going to go to the one that was in another state. I don't know.
1: Like, oh my gosh, I wonder. Or maybe like, she's really much... involved. I don't know. Yeah, that, I've seen like clips where she looks like she's like in tears and walking through, like, really? very shaken. Yeah, so it would be. I mean, of course, anybody would probably feel that way, but
0: yeah, um. I've i remember. An interview with her a long time ago where they asked her, you know, if you weren't like a performer, what would you be doing? And she was like, I would have gone into forensics. And they were like, oh, that's really odd. Why? And she was like, I've been fascinated with that. She didn't tell this story, but she's like, I've been fascinated by the psychology of the mind of a murderer for my entire life. And she's like, I probably would have gone into forensics so I could get a greater understanding of what compels someone to do something like that. And I never tied it back to this case until I heard that she was involved. Because that's a pretty new, like, revelation, I would say, in the media that Kristen, like, no one's ever really talked about Kristen Chenoweth being linked to the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Right. Yeah. But with that, we can conclude. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Thank you again for the suggestion. I know several creepers have suggested this, but again, I will give that shout out to... Shree the B5. Thank you so much. (laughs) We love you for suggesting. Shree the
1: B5. Shree the B5, your name makes up for how heavy this is. It's so light and cute. (laughs) It it
0: absolutely does, yeah. I can't even believe you suggested it. I don't know what's going on at home, but I wish you the best. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) All right, guys, we will catch you on another one. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.